Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation. <laughs> under you said whiskey. you were going to do it differently. You really did it differently. <sighs> you did not lie. Hey, Jason. Hey, buddy. How you doing, man? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm thinking about today's episode. Okay. What are you thinking about today's episode? Well, what I'm thinking is that it's, you know, kind of like during Passover, you say, why is today different from every other day? I remember the four questions. Right? And, and I'm saying, why is today's episode different from every other episode of, of One Nation Under Whiskey? Well, A, it's spatially, temporally separate. Mm. But I think you're making a, a different point. <laughs> I, I am, but I, I'm glad that you, you're using some of your dictionary words. Um, <laughs> we've actually, it's so interesting. There have been a few people... I've been reading on the on the Facebooks on our Single Cast Nation Facebook page, who said, you know, I've been going back, listening to back episodes, and Ben Homan is one of the people who said this. And as they're talking, they're throwing out these words that are saying, now I get to use this word. It's like all of a sudden they go back to listen to our episodes and, and it's going to English class. Like co- conflab, that was, that was the word, conflab. Oh right, yeah. That was a that was a new one for Ben Holman in particular, or, or somebody else. I'm going by memory. I don't feel like opening up Facebook. I'm going to assume that it was Ben Holman, or it was someone else. See now you're now you're coming around to my way of thinking. There's there's never a good reason to open Facebook <laughs> unless oh unless all right unless okay it's to spend a few moments okay in the private members only single cast nation. Facebook group. It's a special place to be. Lovely it's an, people. It's Lovely, an wonderful, generous, kind, thoughtful, sharing people. Speaking of generous, kind, wonderful people, we got to meet and hang out with the one and only Will Oldham, aka Bonnie Prince Billy, in live and in person. We did. We did. With with masks and social distancing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we got to meet him. We did not shake his hand. We no. did not hug him. We did not sit on his lap, nor he on ours. It was back porch all the way. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful. Poured some drams, had some chat. Yeah, he, he was a good lad to talk to, because obviously... He's thinking deeply about music and the music industry and and the changing music industry. Mm, mm-hmm. But there were many moments where he offered me a jumping off point to consider whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that, that I have been deeply contemplating since returning from our Kentucky trip is what is whiskey for? Hmm. Uh, on one hand, I think it depends... To whom the question is asked. Sure. Because on, on one hand, I find myself sitting of a, of a day, of, a, of an afternoon or of an evening, pondering whiskey, contemplating the whiskey in my glass, the colour, mm-hmm. the nose, the, the texture, the palate, the finish. And, and I sometimes wonder if that experience is coming between me and the whiskey. You know, maybe whiskey is is for drinking. Maybe maybe it's simply for imbibing. Uh, another yeah. aspect that that I know I've I've become all too guilty of 
And I'm, I'm going to rope you in here, so I'm not just throwing myself under the bus. I'm going to throw us both under the bus. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Is that it's, it's, it's become all too easy to, to have whiskey as an ornament, right? If you walk into to my office or you walk into your office, there are, there are sample bottles that we're working through. Mm-hmm. There are open bottles of, of purchased whiskey that we're, that we're tasting and discussing and, and sharing and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But then there's also display whiskey, right? The, the whiskey that we say, I'm saving that for a special occasion, right? Which, which is one yep. aspect of this. But I think there's another aspect, and you and I have talked to the nation about this. In buying in twos, there's the open bottle and the stored or the saved bottle. Hmm. But I, there's also a part of me wonders if there's the open bottle and there's the ornamental bottle. And and you, and, and, I, and I really am not throwing you under the bus here. I'm just thinking out loud as we're recording here. Okay. You, you posted on social medias the other day that you had acquired a Kilhoman 14-year-old <laughs> that was bottle number two. And that was your backup Kilhoman 14. And now you're going to need a backup to your backup. Yep. Because you simply cannot open bottle number two. You cannot. But that that caused me to, to to wonder, to contemplate deeper. Why not? Right? And 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 that kind of that fostered my question of what is whiskey for? If we've now got bottle number two and I happen to own bottle number 11. Uh, I, I acquired mine in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, I, I acquired bottle number 11, and you uh-huh. and I had said over text, well, bottle number 11's not getting opened, right? Yeah. And so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't strike me that that's what whiskey is for. It's not ornamental. It shouldn't be ornamental, and yet, no. and yet but we have bottles that are ornamental. But I think certain numbers hold a certain importance, <laughs> right? You, you know, think think about think about my other the first bottle number two I'd ever received. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Margot cask, Glenmorangie. No, no, uh, it Glen, Glenmorangie. I'm sorry, Glenmorgy. Uh, it, w- it wasn't the Margot cask. It was the truffle. No, it was the truffle. Right, and so I saw the bottle on Abbey Whiskey, and this was. 2008, 2009. No, no, later than that. It was maybe a month or two, or maybe a year or two. I don't even remember at this point. Uh, from when Dr. Whiskey, Sam Simmons, aka Dr. Whiskey, wrote his review of the Glenmorangie Truffle Oak, and his notes were fascinating because, to make a long story short, he basically said the flavors were coming at such a fast pace, he was just throwing down a laundry list of flavors. And it was just like, boom, boom, boom. This It tastes like this and this and this and this. And it just sounded like a fascinating whiskey to me. And I loved the idea of Dr. Bill Lumsden trying out different kinds of oak to finish whiskey in. So I said, uh, you know, if, if Sam Simmons loves it and my palate kind of aligned with his then I need a bottle. And so I found this bottle on Abbey Whiskey and I ordered it. And then the email came in saying, your bottle's on your way. By the way, I think you're going to like the bottle number. <laughs> and so I get it and it's bottle number two. So and- even Mike Sharples knew what he was giving away. 
right? Store owner who said, I'm not going to hold on to bottle number two. What he did, right? Yes. And, and to make it even more so, he had to have known this. That bottle once belonged to Graham Ewanson, who was the distillery manager at the time. Yep. And it says it right on the bottom. It says Graham Ewanson on that. And so, and Mike sold it as Graham Ewanson bottle. He sold it as bottle number two. For him, it was a sale, and that's perfectly fine. But yep. for me as now the owner of it, there's something special. Because I quite like Graham Ewanson, right? Meeting him at Tomatin. Oh, he's a lovely fellow. It, yeah. it was a wonderful experience meeting him and, and talking to him about that bottle and and so, yeah, so I, I don't think whiskey should be ornamental. However, there are fun stories connected with certain bottles. And with that one, with the Truffle Oak, there's a story behind it. With this one, the Kilhoman, I don't know if there's necessarily a story behind it. But here's the thing. Okay, go ahead. On one hand, you talk about the story, and I, I'm right there with you. I think that lineage is lovely. But why is the story contingent on the bottle being unopened? Why does the story not exist independently of the liquid inside, the cork being sealed on top? The story's it, the story. The, the story's the story. The problem is a bottle, much like a $20 bill, loses its value once you open it. Once, once you... Once you bring that $20 bill to the cash register, and even if you're buying a, a, you know, a water that's $1.50, you now have $18.50 that is much easier to spend than that $20 bill. And similarly, with a bottle you're hesitant to open, as soon as you open it, it's much easier to empty and go away. And that's, for me, that's it. Like somehow it means that that will go away at some point. But if you keep it closed, you can live in the illusion that it won't go away anytime soon. But you could also turn it into a lamp. We see people putting fairy lights into empty bottles and putting sure. them on display and have it on your desk. And the story would still exist and you would now have a, a lamp out of it as well. Agreed. But <laughs> listen, you say that with such resignation in your voice. I mean, you, you oh, know, he's talked to me to a place where I have to agree. Look, look, uh -huh. look. You my know, worst nightmare has come. You true. know, yes. you know my collection, and you yes. know that I have a very, very, very small handful of bottles that are of the utmost importance to me that will get opened in time. But I, I, am, I am nowhere near the end of my days, and I'll open them when I'm ready to open them. And until then, I'm happy to just show and share stories. And please, yeah, don't take this as an attack on you. you are, you're one of the most generous people I know when it comes to whiskey and, and around your daughter's bat mitzvahs and, and special events and special times a year. You've, you've told people, you've told me, head upstairs, find a bottle, open it, bring it downstairs, we'll enjoy it together. I, I'm definitely not throwing you under the bus here. I'm just curious because you know, neither one of us thought bottle 11 should be opened. 
And neither one of us thinks bottle two should be opened. And neither one of us thinks your your Graham Yunsen truffle oak bottle should be opened. I'm just trying to get at the heart of why? Why? Why shouldn't we do that? And 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 I think it's a an empty answer when we say, well, we're just gonna sit on them a little longer. And yeah. and, I, and I wonder about that. Look at look at this big collection that went up for sale earlier this year, uh, where the, the chap in Colorado had been collecting, you know, since the nineties and, and had some absolute remarkable bottles. And I and I just think that's a dude who died with a whole lot of really yeah. wonderful stories, yeah. wonderful yep. bottles. And and the story went, you know, he was buying them six at a time, eight at a time, and he was opening along the way and he was sharing mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. the way. And he was living a whiskey life. At the end of the day, there was a massive collection went up for sale that had never been opened. And it just continues to feed into my question, what is whiskey for? Because I, I definitely think of us as being people, and, and I mean this as, as a fandom writ large, yeah. we are people who save bottles for special occasions, for special reasons, you know, to, to have a story presented to us on a shelf, to be able to tell other people those stories. Mm. Um, and and it's just it just seems so tied to the liquid in the bottle with a sealed cork and a sealed capsule of some description. That it, I'm trying to get to the heart, and I'm, I'm going to continue to ponder this uh, on my lonesome, but there's, there's something connected to the unopened bottle that heightens our appreciation, our guardedness, our protection, our historical nature. I, I don't know what the word is. Well, there's, there's something there. I'd like to continue this conversation until after our interview with Will, but I think there's a connection here. And I think I hope so. I, I think that it's tied to a particular preciousness, right? There's there's something about that bottle or a bottle or a series of bottles that becomes precious to us for, for whatever reason. And I think there's a connection to some of what Will had mentioned in the interview. So I, I, want, I want to visit that after the interview, if you wouldn't mind. I, I do want to touch a little bit, you know, before we hand it over to our conversation with Will, I want to touch a bit on, on why we have Will Oldham on the podcast, okay, before we introduce him. I have a feeling, you know, we have... God knows how many listeners. I, I, you know, I looked at the metrics, and and we're we're looking at forty thousand ish, you know, downloads or streams per month. Maybe a bit more than that of our of our podcast. So there's, you know, that and that's across one hundred and fifteen episodes or so. So how many people that is, I don't know, but I would guess a fair few of those may not even know who Will Oldham is, which in some ways surprises me, but in some ways also does not surprise me. Because as a musician, he's a bit more esoteric than others. And, you know, Will Oldham, for me at least, is is someone I discovered, and we talk about this in, in the interview, is someone I discovered in the 90s. And instantly, instantly fell in love with his music and 
just like I am with guitar pedals and guitars when I go down a rabbit hole. I'm collecting everything and I'm buying everything. And just like I was with whiskey, I'm going down that rabbit hole and discovering new whiskeys and new bottlings. And, you know, and, and I was the same with, and still am, the same with Will Oldham's music, with the music of Bonnie Prince Billy. That, that's his stage name. And for me, it's difficult to explain why I'm so passionate about his music. And I think it's easier, perhaps, to maybe give our listeners some examples of, of songs, just snippets, to show people what I fell in love with out the gate. And, and maybe a, a bit of his newer music to, to show people why I'm still in love with his music. And I want to ask you to do the very same because I know you you've you've listened to Will Oldham and, and Bonnie Prince Billy and Palace, mm-hmm. you know, for for just as long as I have, maybe even longer because I know you've had some history with him and or his music in in university. But I want to put forward a little bit of a song from an album called Viva Last Blues. It's from when when Will was playing under the moniker of Palace Music. And this song, and I'm just going to play about 20 seconds or so, this song is called New Partner. And it introduced to me a side of country-esque, alt-country. It didn't feel like country, but there were twinges of country in it. But it was just pure soul, pure feeling. And I, and I fell in love with the song in his voice immediately. So I'm going to hand it over to Will and a little bit of New Partner. And then I'm curious what song touches you the most. There's a black tinted sunset with the prettiest of skies. Lay back, lay back, rest your head on my thighs. There is some awful action that just breathes from my hand just breaths from a deed so exquisitely grand and you're always on my mind and you are always on my mind and you are always along my mind and you fucking beautiful it is it really is <laughs> the 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 chorus you know the this chorus this you know up and down and up and down chorus was just i remember when i first heard it and you know being on tour with my old band and we would just be driving down the road and when that chorus came on we would all of us be gone, you know, just up and down and up and down. And, and it was just so much fun to sing along with. And, and it came to me at this time when I'm 21, 22, 23 years old, something like that. Very, uh, you know, I did a lot of growing in my early 20s, as I imagine a lot of people did. And, and that music just meant a lot to me. What when I started 
gigging around with my band and discovering new music and getting out of the box that was punk and hardcore and and just going to a music that I was a bit less familiar with. Hmm. For my selection, I picked Wolf Among Wolves, hmm. which is from the Master and Everyone album. Yep. Recorded as Bonnie Prince Billy. Okay. And I think you know, you and I have spent enough time together on our on our travels that I really like singer-songwriter mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really like Iron and Wine. Um, I really like Cat Stevens. I've loved Cat Stevens. Oh, yeah, you and so me both. Long. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Johnny Cash and, and various iterations of Johnny Cash, and, and I could go on and on and on and on. But, and this comes up in the interview with Will as well, for me... Will Oldham is is such a lyricist mm-hmm. that the music is is there for me to really shine a light on the lyrics, and I love the fact that in this song, the the music doesn't in any way, shape, or form get in the way of the lyrics, <laughs> but it just heightens how beautiful the composition is, and and any time. I'm I'm moving through the world and this song comes on, I stop what I'm doing and I listen to this song. And this is why I want to share it with our listeners. She holds a phantom, she kisses and she hugs him. And I am not averse to how she loves him. Why must I live and walk Unloved as what I am Why can't I be Loved as what I Did that live up to the advance billing? Was that suitably beautiful? It was suitably beautiful. And and to be honest, that is easily, if not my first, if not my second, maybe my first favorite song on that entire album. I think the whole album fits. Yeah. <laughs> it, it fits exactly <laughs> yeah. what you were saying. That album is all about the lyrics. Not all about the lyrics, but it is. It's pretty evident to me and in, in Master and everyone that the music, and it's similar, it's kind of the way we talk about whiskey, right? When we talk about the oak putting the spirit on a pedestal, I feel as if the music in Master and everyone is putting the lyrics on a pedestal. That is beautifully put. Right? Given that one of our running jokes is you saying, how will I say this? And me 
interjecting with the word poorly. That was the exact opposite of that running joke. That was that was very well put, Joshua. I really, I doff my cap to you, and I mean that in a very literal sense, as you just saw in the video. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I I had one more song that I wanted to play, but I want our listeners, hopefully those songs give our listeners an understanding of, of, of what we fall in love with when it comes to Will's music. After we're done, I want to throw in one other song, and it's from his latest album that I've that really excites me, that, that makes me very happy. Yes? If you get one more, do I get one more, or are you going to get two and I'm going to get one? Uh, the correct answer is we each get one. <laughs> we each get one. We each get one. But Since I, you're I, deliberating I, there. I, I just didn't want to... I didn't want to front load everything, Jason. Oh, no. I, I agree with you. Let's come back after the interview and, and play another couple of favorites or segments from another mm-hmm. couple of favorites. Mm-hmm. And then we've, we've also got the amazing, amazing music that we received from Will on the day. Really special, right? Really special. Well, um, chills stuff. And I, I, I don't know if I'm going to say too much here. On uh, let's come back. I, I'm going to say this after we come back from the interview. So, should we jump into the interview? Has it been long enough? Are we ready to hear from the wonderful Will Oldham? I think we are ready. Well, firstly, thank you for having us. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Being here. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for the whiskey. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's a pleasure, and I realize that you've got. You've got a, a child to pick up in a little bit, so we're mm-hmm. not going to get you too drunk. Good. Just maybe happy. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned in the email, like, I've, I've been a fan of yours for too long. I remember back in the n- mid-90s, buddies who had introduced me to Slint had said, oh, you got to check out this other thing called, called Palace Music, or maybe it's Palace Brothers. I don't remember. You have to... Here, someone made me a tape yep. and, and played it for me, and... And I remember before I got it, I said, well, what is it? Is it hardcore? Is it like, what is it? And they said, and I'll never forget this. And they said, it's some crazy Kentucky shit. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, cool, cool. And so, so I remember listening to it and just, and just falling in love. Like it was just, it was weirdness that I was getting into at the time. Yep. Like at that time I, d- I was discovering fucking lawnmowers yeah. and, uh, <laughs> Well, let, let's hope. Let's hope the S- SM58s the, don't The yards fail us. aren't that big around here, so it can't last too long. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at that time I was getting into um, Bell and Sebastian and, you uh-huh. know, some of these other... Like, I was calming down in my own tastes. And... But it was Palace Brothers slash Palace Music that, that I clung to and continued to, to cling on to as you transformed into Bonnie Prince Billy and, and continue to this day. And so, and just add, add a, a little more, put a few more branches on this, on this tree, yeah. the leaves on the branches. I just recently watched the, the Slint um, documentary. Breadcrumb Trail. Yeah, right? And I knew, I knew that you were connected to them. Yeah. But I also had no idea, or I didn't have an idea that some of those guys played with you early on. Oh, yeah. So what I'm trying to get to is, like, your music 
seems to it's not at odds to what they were doing but it was definitely a sidecar to what they were doing it's just different yeah and i'm just curious where that spark of yours came from to be doing something so very different than what perhaps some of your other peers were doing in those earlier days yeah well what they were doing and it's with each i think with each passing year it's harder to tell how unique what they were doing was because yeah. you start to take for granted sounds that have, have just become if not commonplace at least accepted yeah um but at the time what they were doing was unique um yeah and didn't didn't have any i i, I remember the the first iteration of slint there was a different bass player it was ethan buckler instead of yeah. todd brashear and their, it might have been their first, or if it wasn't their first, it was an early show in Chicago at a Thai restaurant called Bangkok, Bangkok with uh, Jesus Lizard. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And being in the bathroom and someone saying, so what's the deal with this slit band from Louisville? Yeah. And the other guy at the other urinal said, uh, oh, you know, it's like, it's like, they're essentially yes, but they've never even heard yes. <laughs> that's fantastic yeah and I can sort of you yeah. know it's it's just yeah. in, in terms of just not being able to put your finger on something maybe yep. that's that's yep. a, that's a decent way of opening one's brain before you start listening um, but most of what they did happened as you could see in that breadcrumb trail doc to some to a great extent I think that's a really good movie mm -hmm. in the practice room yeah and it wasn't something that got carried outside of the practice room yeah like we all listened to music together and we didn't listen to any music that seemed related to that music except for I think one thing that they did do extremely well was tap into that really unique individual experience that we all have yeah. with music that is revelatory to us you yeah. put it on whatever record and you have the specific relationship to that music that nobody in history has ever had before mm -hmm. and they figured out a way of, at least for a while, to translate that experience mm -hmm. into. So it's like my, you know, they're listening to Killdozer and Big Black and Leonard Cohen and Neil Young, yeah, and having these very specific individual experiences, and then translating it into something so that when you or I hear what they're doing, mm -hmm. we hear that magical chemical uniqueness, yeah, yep. um, that wouldn't translate if they played a song that sounded like Crazy Horse or something like that. Just be like, oh, well, this is that. Exactly. But it's not, no, it's not that. This is our experience of that. Yeah. This is our translation of that or of Hank Williams or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I didn't play any music at all during any of that time. Uh, like when when we were friends in high school, yeah. I took pictures. I took picture. I just yeah. had, had a camera. And you didn't tinker at all? No. No, okay. I was in the theater a lot, and I had to do vocal training and mm -hmm. sometimes sing a song in the course of that work, but I just, I was into music in the way that those guys were into music, but it just never occurred to me to want to play it or to try to play it. And then it wasn't until, I, I think I started to learn an instrument in, when I was 19, mm -hmm. 19, and they were beginning to unravel as a as a band 
and I, and then I and then I just I think I just re and I didn't necessarily you know like Brit has incredible and and Paho like those two mm-hmm. guys specifically you know each of those individuals has special powers but but Paho and Brit have <laughs> yeah. really special musical powers yeah. um, and not that 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 Brian and Todd and Ethan don't but but just the intricacy of their relationship to music yeah. is is pretty is strong uh like a thought process like a thought process or dis i mean i think brit is a, is was insanely disciplined you know on top of having a uniquely creative brain he mm-hmm. was he was insanely disciplined and then paho was is one of those people who just he hears music and it it yeah. he sees it it can break it down yeah. and like he can yeah, sit yeah. behind a drum kit and he can play the drums okay he can play the bass he can play you know he can just do it um not that he doesn't practice and it doesn't take a lot of work but i think he he hears something and his brain breaks it apart different than my brain breaks something Uh, apart um like he he, yeah he'll break something apart whereas my brain continues to see things as a whole and so then i think when i began to, to approach playing music i continued to see it always as a as a whole thing which kept me from ever, or for a long time, from from being able to find the benefit of, of becoming specifically inclined towards one aspect of the discipline, which ended up being singing and lyrics. Mm-hmm. So writing lyrics and singing, singing lyrics, and then continuing to look at the big picture, like a movie producer would look at a motion picture or something like gotcha. that. Gotcha. So we had all the you know all these shared experiences, all these shared tastes, but. I think I kind of really got into playing music because I learned that that's what I'd de- devoted so much of my energy towards up to that point in life mm. and saw that it was a, a a huge world that could never potentially be exhausted. I realized that it would be foolhardy to start over from scratch and try to learn some kind of other trade. Yeah. It was reverse engineering and thinking like, well, I care about nothing in the way that I care about music, so mm-hmm. I should probably and I know, you know, I know how it's built and I know how it's produced and so I should see what I can do about okay, making some, I guess. Something like that. Yeah, but by comparison, what you were producing had a markedly different sound. I guess so. Right? <laughs> and, like, you could hear some of the, li- like, when I, and, and this is just me rewinding the clock yeah. back to 20-something Joshua, right? And and listening to it, and, and I would hear, and I was just, I was a punk and hardcore kid, straight edge, you know, the whole yeah. thing. And I remember listening to it and saying, he made what kind of sounds like country yeah. really fucking cool. Uh-huh. And, and I loved how you did it. And I, and I always wondered, well, not always, but a bit more recently now, but I, but I wondered like where, where that came from. If, you, if, if your local group of friends were playing heavier stuff and like crazy yes and they didn't know it was yes and all this, and you're, you took different routes seemingly i don't know but if i'm explaining it, no, it correctly no you you are but it isn't it's that's so much the outsider 
right? perspective. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's okay. kind of what I'm trying to. Yeah. Because also, even 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 when the first Palace Brothers record came out, and and there started to be reactions to it, talking about it as country at all or mm-hmm. Appalachian at all. Yeah. That was a real mind fuck. I didn't, you know. I, you didn't get that n- comment. N- no, okay. yeah. that was not. You know. Like, there, yeah. There's a banjo on the record mm. because a friend of mine who's an ama- has an amazing brain played the banjo. Yeah, and he needed to be a part of this thing, and so there's a banjo on it. Mm-hmm. But, but right, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's so kind of like, it. You know, here's and, what and, I have to bring to the table. Yeah, and yeah. And, 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 and yeah. I've tried to understand people's conception of it being yeah. because, yeah, like I say, because. We had so many shared musical experiences and and and, and feelings about mm-hmm. music. You know, talking about music, going to see music, participating in music in one way or another. It felt like the goals were, if not the same, at least very very parallel. Yeah. Um, and their abilities. You know, like I say, I I didn't have a brain like Paho or or Brit. Yeah. But it's trying to still do the best that you can possibly do yeah. with the raw materials that God and the world has, has yeah. given us. So in that way, it seems like it's a, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as you're explaining it, I'm, I'm thinking about, and I'm, I'm not going down this tangent, but I'm just thinking about religion, right? Everybody yeah. has, not everybody, but there's a monotheistic idea of God and Jews have this approach yeah. and the final destination is X. Christians have this approach and the final destination is also X, yeah. but the routes are slightly different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And religion like plays its part in music, but how much of that, you know, part of it is just that we live in a world in which religion is just part of language. Mm. And to, it seems like being, you know, claiming atheism cuts a person off from a hell of a lot of culture. Mm-hmm. Whether you know, it, it does define one's you know somebody as well. I'm not of this religious group, but it also says that you know a lot of people because they've been so traumatized oftentimes by religion. Yeah. So there's a legitimate reason for it, but they they push they 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 don't allow anything that looks that smacks of religion into their now the hummingbirds back right behind you it's so oh, beautiful it? it's see it oh i see it yeah oh my gosh and those oh, flowers are just great. made for it aren't their feet like too small and weak for them to to stand i don't i mean they perch but i don't know oh, do they perch oh, okay i, I, I feel like, like i saw one perch for the first time within the last year and i always didn't know <laughs> if they could ever rest oh my gosh but yeah, nice they have to, to be able to pause, sit down right? somewhere. Yeah, right? Take a <laughs> break. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Sit on an egg? Do they sit on eggs? Sure. I think they have to, right? <laughs> I don't know. Nobody has to do anything. That's, that's one thing my daughter says now. Have to? Like if you say like something. That's she's funny. Like, have to? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, that re- yeah, my, my oldest daughter is now 14. Right around that same age, year and a half to two years. She would say, because she would want to know what we're doing, if we're in the other room doing something, and she would come in the room and she'd say, doing. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, see? Yeah. I love these. I love rewinding the clock. <laughs> yeah. Just thinking about those things. Yeah. So in, in terms of rewinding the clock and, and somewhat selfishly for me, uh, I was reading that some of your, your seed in music came from Scotland. Yeah. Came from being over there, experiencing folk music. Yeah. Um, and even having a, a friend make a, a tape. Multiple tapes, yeah. Right. Uh, and so on one hand, I'm curious... What was it like for you growing up in Kentucky and being surrounded by such wonderful, rich history in Kentucky? And then what was it like for you having that kind of moment experiencing Scotland through Scottish folk music? Hmm. Yeah. I, <laughs> for whatever reason, one thing that I was always attracted to field recordings of traditional musics um, because I always... I always, you know, I, I think partly be, from growing up in a vibrant music scene yeah. and spending so much time at house shows or basement band practices and, you know, getting my rocks off so hard from music that just people were playing. And then, and then, and then you do what? You eat pizza, you walk down the street together, you go to school, you yeah. listen to music, talk about music, just thinking like, well, music is, to me, only essentially valuable in the way that it applies to a, an individual's life. And so oftentimes you listen to records, and of course they're made in these weird cultural vacuums called recording studios. Mm -hmm. And they're almost designed to be you know, universally applicable and to not carry any baggage with them. And so I think, so I always, like, I always liked music that was related to people's lives. Mm. So I you know, end, end up, you know, going to the library and finding whatever I could find that were, you know, field recordings of traditional musics. And there's a lot of that are profoundly effective and beautiful and hypnotic and inspiring. But I also love a lyric. And yeah. so I'm looking then for things that are sung in English because there's lots of beautiful Bengali singing, Japanese singing, and sure. um, Aboriginal vocal noises and singing and but there's, you know, I don't know where what, what's going on here. I don't know. And then, and and Scotland was, and, and you might just say because it just is. But you know, I for some reason I found it to be more inspiring or beautiful or engaging than say English folk music. Sure, uh, makes sense. Yeah, I'm very sense. happy. Yeah, you made him very yeah. happy. And 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 then as well, like there there was a theater company that I was involved with here, and the woman who ran it had a relationship with Scotland and at one point when I was 12 she said let's go we'll rent this big house in uh, Glen Lyon outside of Aberfeldy um, and we'll go visit various places we, we, we were traveling also with a playwright named John Peelmeyer who at the time was working on a one man play about J.M. Barry which ultimately was called Courage and it's a really good play okay, if you ever yeah. find it so we visited J.M. Barry's house and we visited Burnham Wood, the tree, um, you know, the last tree from Burnham Wood from okay. you know, Macbeth. And that was my first time out of the country. I was 12, you know, like I say, I was with my family, but also with these theater folks. And we, we were there in the middle of, you know, the middle of Scotland, kind of. It's kind of, it kind of is almost the middle of yep. Scotland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And started to, you know, and, but at the same, you know, we were, we went to Cayley's and we, you know, and so then I, that was one of the first places where I was able to see music that wasn't American music played in, you know, 
as a part of people's lives, you know, like a Kaylee happened and everybody went in where we were. Sure. Um, And that was just tremendously exciting. At the same time, it was, it was hard to find access to music that, where the music actually was like felt, you know, resonant and, and current either because it was just, you know, older people singing or the, the cassettes you could find in the tourist shops were just the most basic, mm-hmm. you know, renditions. Not of great. Not great. And yet I knew, like, that the music was obviously so rich that that music was there. E- even, you know, I, I was guessing that there were going to be modern recordings of 100, 200, 300-year-old songs that would yeah. be profoundly effective, but I wasn't sure how to find them. And ultimately, like, so we, we had rented this big house and, and the Gilly, you know what a Gilly is? I no, heard in Gilly. A Gilly, in Gilly, I would call yeah. a Gilly like a groundskeeper. Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. So the Gilly of, <laughs> yeah, the Gilly. Uh, so the, they, the Gilly's family lived next door to this big house that we all situated ourselves in, which was, I think, like a hunting lodge in season, mm-hmm. but it was out of season. The, and there were boys, the three boys. The oldest, I think, is now a banker and has been a banker for a long time. But he greeted us with pipes, you know, in full wow. dress. Whoa! And then the middle son, so I went back when I was 17, I guess, and hitchhiked around, went back to visit the family, the Gillies family, and uh, the middle son had become deep, deeply in, you know, involved with music, not a, not a musician. Um, he's still, like now, he, he, books a th- he booked a theater in Aberdeen for a long time. He books a theater in Perth now, runs a festival in Perth. Okay. We re-encountered ourselves in our you know late teens, and and I was able to put the questions to him. I was like, where I I am sus- I'm suspecting that there is amazing Scottish music. Where where is it? And he's like, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I'm disinterested in mm. like I know Robert Burns is probably cooler than I can f- figure out, and I know that bagpipes are a cooler instrument than we often hear them to be. <laughs> um, and. So yeah, he was just like, "Oh, give me, you know, give me five pounds, and I'll send you some music." And yeah, he 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 ended up sending six months later, like all this all this music, and 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 is still a friend to this day. Who's like, we've I've done shows with him now, and and that and that helped cement for me, like, you know, one of the big blessing curses of of my life is how incredible my musical life has, you know fortunately been mm-hmm. in that you know i did grow up in this city that had a magnificent and supportive and interesting and eclectic music community that is you know still decades later is still continues to inspire and is like my family you know nice. and that i happened to meet you know andy shearer who could show me that my you know that, that my thoughts were correct in terms of you know where I could find satisfaction in a modern approach to traditional Scottish music mm-hmm. and Scottish and Irish. Cause he was way into Scottish. He's way into mm-hmm. Scottish and Irish music. Yeah, okay. And, and he was a, a wonderful teacher uh, because when he sent me the cassettes, he also sent me pages and pages of notes on every song oh, where wow. he had sourced the recordings, who the singer was, where the song came from, you know, wow. That's so, serious. Yeah, it's serious. And yeah. there've been so many things along those lines that have happened that it's it's kept my expectations and my standards extremely high which means that you know I'm 
frequently disappointed, but at the same time, I'm frequently rewarded. So I, I keep thinking like the next reward is just around the, the corner. Sure, sure. Just to close out that thought, in, in almost discovering yourself through that experience of Scottish music, yep. did that cause you to reflect on being the Kentucky fellow, the Kentucky chap that you were or that you were becoming? It did, especially because, you know, I think our conversation, my conversation with Andy began because I had, his folks had come to visit Kentucky because we all became friends with the Shearers, the, the Gilly family. Mm. And they had come here, I think there was like a screening of this movie that I was in in the 80s called Mate One, which is about oh, yeah. West Virginia mining yeah. wars. And they were here for for that. And they had asked for if I would make them a mixtape of Kentucky music. So I made them a mix, you know, and that wasn't necessarily my forte, yeah. but I did have my things that I was into. Yeah. And when I went to their house, and fortunately he was there, he had, you know, absconded with their cassettes that I'd made for them, and, and he, you know, was really excited about them. That and, and realizing, yeah, every, you know, when you live somewhere, you don't, you just you just that's who you are and then when you go other places you realize oh that's who i am exactly at least to other people or at least in in some sense i i am that person and and understanding that it's a job to make that you know a fruitful and productive aspect of your identity for, sure for your own self as well like for sure realize, yeah like, oh well this is something that hmm. i was born into and I can I, I can own it and it may take work you know like it it's but it might be easier to to do that in Kentucky than I don't know than it might be in Missouri for example yeah the reason that it kind of appeals to me and captures my imagination is I never visited a Scottish distillery uh -huh. until I'd moved to the United States yeah. full time and it was that realization of it's always easy to look outside of yourself. And I always wanted to live in the United States. Uh -huh. And once I'd moved here, it gave me a chance to explore what I'd left behind. And so now getting to go home you know, with yeah. the company gives me that chance to pick up the thread that I just simply dropped right. and didn't really value. And, and so you can imagine growing up in Scotland, Scottish folk music isn't that appealing oh, of course yeah. um this the same way that a lot of scots people are growing up with no interest in whiskey right uh, and so that's why I'm, I'm curious about that parallel where i was in scotland not really paying attention to whiskey although it was always around but it was always rock gut and here you were growing up in kentucky surrounded by whiskey yeah and had, did you have much attention on the whiskey that you were growing up amongst or was that just another thing that another generation did it was like you. I, I didn't partake for most, of, you know, until I was also until I was maybe nineteen. Yeah. It, it just sort of happened. Like I never. I mean, every once in a while for a lark, I would put a permanent marker X on my hand. Like we we thought it was like funny. Yeah. Funny. It was like funny cool. Yeah. Um, which I guess developed into being called ironic in the, <laughs> the, the, dec the following decade. Exactly. Um, but at the same time, it was like we, you know. I was I got so high off of music that I yeah. was just like why I mean I don't understand why this group of kids yeah. is wanting to drink when you know the drinking doesn't seem as fun as turning this music up like yep. this music why what's better than this there's nothing better than this 
and when I started to get a taste for whiskey, it was interesting because when I, then I would go to Europe and play shows in the 90s and there wasn't a lot of bourbon available. Usually you go and, and sure. go like, say, I'd like, what kind of bourbon do you have? And they would say, we have Jack Daniels. I mean, that was the answer <laughs> yeah. most yeah. of the time. Yeah. And if it wasn't Jack Daniels, it was Jim Beam or this oh. mysterious bourbon called Four Roses, which didn't really exist on the shelves here ah, okay. at that time. Okay. Uh. But I remember, going to, I remember going to the Maker's Mark Distillery in the 90s and thinking you know, that it was a beautiful and fascinating place. I haven't been since then. I don't know if it's still a beautiful and fascinating place. It, it is. is. Yep. It is. Yeah, that's cool. It's gorgeous. Um, and I remember... Like moving to Alabama for for a little while, and and it was fun to explore the bourbons that were available. Yeah, because basically thinking about drinking hard alcohol was just pretty much thinking about drinking bourbon, mm-hmm. because the the scotches I had had like J and B and Dewar's okay. were okay, but I, I, it didn't make me want to buy a bottle, for example. Yeah. Same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was and that was what you know that was what we knew about or what we, or potentially what was available. I have no idea. I mean, definitely the whiskey uh, mm. selection was pretty limited. I remember getting really excited by J.W. Dant because it had the most beautiful... Do you know that bourbon? I don't. I've heard of it. It's got one it. of the most beautiful yeah. labels and, and I think that it still exists, but I don't know... I haven't... S- it, it had a, a... What do you call it? it, it the label's embossed and it mm-hmm. has four kernels of corn as part of their logo. Oh, okay. It's maybe three red kernels and a yellow kernel in four points like of the compass. Yeah. And those are embossed and raised and the JW Dan is in a beautiful script and it's raised and it was a hundred proof bourbon Okay. Uh, that I remember, yeah, drinking in Alabama in the yeah. in the nineties. You know, I'd be interested to hear what the experience of visiting a Scottish distillery was and is, especially in comparison to what's going on in Kentucky, because what's going on in Kentucky is, I mean, I don't think it's cool, especially the way that it's affected, you know, it, like the contrast is so huge right now as as our mayor and, and different mm-hmm. people of, in power or around the state have invested so much in this bourbon boom and and seeing like you know downtown now is a is is a ghost town Mm -hmm. yeah you know because resources were misallocated uh to say the least and Mm. and and just this idea of like like i was curious when when there were maybe there was a coalition of of some scottish distilleries in the 90s it was like lagavulin talisker uh, Oban, uh-huh. yeah. and there was one more, right? There uh, were like four that I would always see on the screen. Kinchy and Craig and Moore, I yeah. want to say. Yeah. It, what, was there a Mac? Was there a, no? Okay. No. I didn't remember this. Yeah, it would have been yeah. McAllen. Yeah. Um, but, but what you had was the traditional company of Highland distillers became or, or merged with what would become Diageo. And so then you had those exact distilleries became really the crown jewels of Scotland's distilleries. Because Diageo owned all of those distilleries. So and they was... were legitimately established distilleries. Oh, yeah. very much yeah. so. Oh, wonderful. 200-year-old yeah. distilleries, yeah. Like a, so there was this a graphic designer that came in and sort of linked them as well? So, yes. So yeah. what, they, what they tried to do was, and, and it, <laughs> it, it was to the good of the Scotch industry, was at a time when single malt was just trying to get its footing. And so 90s Scotland, single malt is just trying to get its footing. 
Diageo came out with this classic malts line and it became all of the marketing around those six distilleries uh. where if you then came to Scotland, because of the regions that they occupied, if you travelled around Scotland, you would invariably get to hit each of those distilleries. Uh. Now... And what's the what was the experience like of hitting one of those distilleries? So... At the time they were doing it, well, C Craig and Moore, um, I think had only just created a visitor center for that experience. Um, and so it was a distillery that you wouldn't have previously been able to to visit or explore in any way. Yeah. And so it started to... Well, you wouldn't have been able to visit or explore in any way. But like, mm -hmm. this is something that like I'm, I've always been, I've always found that there's a little bit of tragedy whenever anything mm -hmm. uh, gets some of its income from tourism you know mm -hmm. something beautiful like the state of hawaii or a great distillery and so what yeah. would have happened if you just were like this is my favorite whiskey i'm gonna go there i'm gonna knock on the door and say would you show me around would they say no or would they be like oh sure come in they would have yeah in the in the 80s and the early 90s yeah they would have looked at you like you'd lost your mind uh -huh. um, and then they would have brought you in and showed you around yeah. quite happily yeah. and, and would so it have felt like a factory or what would it have felt like that would have been a factory aspect to yeah. it. I think those who manage distilleries understand that they're operating factories yeah. and producing product. It's the marketing departments of larger you know, conglomerations that are in charge of selling romanticism right. and selling yeah. an image. Yeah. Whereas those who simply run it can be very proud of what they're running, but they're not running a tourist-facing business. Yep. They're running a factory that produces a product. Um, and, I, and, and so, to, to answer your question, those who became part of the classic malts, to some extent, you see a, a Disneyfication. Yeah. And that's something we hear about Kentucky as well. Yeah. Right? There's a Disneyfication happening where you go for the experience. But the experience, but the experience is completely manufactured. Correct. Yeah. Well, here yeah. it's completely manufactured. Correct. But yeah. is it completely manufactured? That's what, like, is, there, is there a foundation for the romanticism surrounding Scottish distilleries? In certain distilleries yeah. in Scotland, you will absolutely get the Disneyfication of Scotch. Yeah. But then. And this, this is those who are doing the combination of factory and tourism well yeah. are still selling something um, legitimate, yeah. right? And so if you go to Kilhoman on Isla, you've got a farmhouse distillery that you really have to traverse the island after you've traversed the water, after you've traversed the mainland, yeah. right? You really have to want to get there. And once you get there, yes, they've got a fantastic tea room. Yes, you can get a tremendous sandwich, but you can also see a farmhouse distillery yeah. that's showing you how this used to be done. And that, that to me is the meeting point where you get a legitimacy along with the understanding that it's tourism that's oftentimes paying your bills, hiring the majority of your staff, right. getting people to make it all the way to your distillery. So in Scotland, you know, you know Scots, we're, we're a pragmatic people. Yep. There's that understanding that... There's another thing I love about Scotland. Yeah. Thank you. There's, the, there's that understanding that, yes, you can have your romance, and yes, you can have your traditions, but if you're not living 
in this moment right now yeah. um, and understanding that we've lost industry and we need tourism, mm. then you're, you're making a mistake. And so it's that pragmatic mind that combines tourism with something legitimate yeah. at the heart. Yeah. And, and you know, there are, there are distilleries in Kentucky that have cracked that code as well. To some um, extent. Right. I mean, we're, we're, the glut right now is, is all of these manufactured histories, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and new, you know, either I, you can't tell if, 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 a you know, advertising company has created this ridiculous Kentucky name, or if they just looked through the criminal records right. of the mid 19th century and said, you know, Hezekiah Bucketsmith, that sounds like a great name for a bourbon. Let's pretend that it existed yeah. or, it, or it's one guy who made uh, but, but here, terrible bottles. And but here's the thing, Will, if you read Fred Minnick's book uh -huh. on bourbon, yeah. That's always been bourbon. There hasn't been bourbon outside of that. And so I was, when I, you know, obviously being Scotsman moving to America and having this level of frustration with that, yeah. where I wanted to get access to the distillery, right? Just tell me about the distillery. Don't yeah. dress it up. And reading Fred's book, bourbon has always been built on the back of stories and branding and marketing. Uh -huh. And you've had very few distilleries that have put out one singular name distillery product. It, it's always been on the back of, of marketing. So when you say always, and, and then yeah. compare it to Scotch whiskey, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Scotch whiskey, these are distilleries slash factories that were creating something that people just drank, right? And, and or it was or bourbon differently? Yeah, blended away into those things that you and I never drank. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, like, was bourbon always like a product designed to be marketed, or was it also a pragmatic thing that people just like? This is a distilled beverage that tastes halfway decent and makes me feel all right. I th I think you could argue both. Yeah. Right. I think you could argue there was again that smaller, you know, you know, number who were having that pragmatic experience. But if you wanted to sell your bourbon across the state of Kentucky or across the South or across the nation, then you better have a story to go along with it. But, uh -huh. but early on, it was completely different. Early on, it was just an agricultural product. You That's had, what I would have right? thought, yeah, yeah. You had people coming over from, from Scotland, from Ireland, from Wales, coming over sure. to carry on sure. the agricultural heritage that they had over there. There yeah. wasn't, you know, the, the whole marketing idea is very new. It's so new, at least, mm, at least new. -ish. Define new, yeah, define so, so new. So let, let, me, let me give an idea. Uh -huh. So when we talk about Scotch whiskey, we typically talk about single malt. And uh -huh. now if you, if you talk about Scotch, people say, well, single malt, that's, that's the creme de la creme, right? Yeah. That's, you like your Lafroy, he likes his Lagavulin, so yeah. on and so forth. But it wasn't until the late 50s to mid 60s that a single malt brand was even marketed. They uh -huh. were all distilleries making malt whiskey to go into your Johnny Walkers, to go uh -huh. into your Chivas or your Ushers or what oh, have you. Oh, and I you. love my Johnny Walker Black. Right? That's and, one of my favorite all-time And so you had 30-plus distilleries producing whiskey that Diageo would bring in to create your Johnny Walker Black. Yeah. And most people never even heard of these distilleries. Right. To this date, there's, you've got about 130 distilleries in Scotland, and maybe 60 to 70 of them produce a single malt that's marketed, bottled, sold as a single malt. The rest of them just produce, they're a factory that produce malt whiskey yeah. that go into right. some sort of a blend. Yeah. 
And I, I mean, thinking about Johnny Walker Black and the way that it makes me feel, is there's another thing that I've wondered about with the, with the beer boom or with any, you know, of, of the various wine movements throughout my, my life or this. I marvel at the fact that there isn't a lot of discussion, or I don't hear it, maybe you guys do, but about choosing your whiskeys based on the specifics of the emotions or energies yeah. that, that they provoke in your own self. And because I've always found like the Johnny Walker Black is just like, if I'm lost and don't know what to do with myself and I'm out on the road somewhere, I just know like, if I drink that for the next five or six hours, everything is going to be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just does like, it, it clarifies yeah, me and energizes yeah, me and then yeah. I forget about it. Like I forget it exists for months at a time and then hmm. it's just like, Interesting. But, it's, but you know, but in the, yeah. in the, my go-to Lefroy 10 years is a similar thing. It's just like, as soon as I have a sip of it, my whole body recognizes yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. And, and I don't, you know, and I wish that, that makers of, and I know it's probably depends on internal body chemistry. So sure, you can't, sure. you can only rely on that to a certain extent, but, 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 but you're, you're starting to talk to something that Joshua and I have been talking about, which is the, the, the contextual nature of imbibing, right? Yeah. Which is there's something about you being somewhere on the road that Johnny Walker Black speaks to you in that moment because it has spoken to you previously, mm-hmm. and and you're revisiting revisiting that context. I guess I don't know how much of it is chemical and how much of it is contextual though. Yeah, that's what my question is: how much of it is chemical? Like, there are certain bourbons that might make me unhappy right away. Oh, right away. Oh, okay, sure. And it's just like oh, and I, it's not connected know. to no bad experiences. You, no, you don't realize it on. until. Yeah. 10 minutes in you you just think like huh i've just, i'm doing I'm, I'm heading down the wrong road mm. right now but it, related to the last thing another yeah. uh, the when do you imagine like the first print advertise or the first wave of print advertisements for scotch whiskies were uh, 100 years ago or not oh, not at all yeah first print you've actually got you mentioned Aberfeldy earlier it was yeah. it was Dewar who Dewar, led yeah, the Dewar. path on that uh-huh. and i want to say and i only read this at the distillery last year I would hate to put a date on it, but I, I would say a hundred years would be pretty fair. He he was also a chap who was going down to London, walking into a bar completely unknown, asking if they had doers, and then if they did, he would order it and then proclaim how fantastic it was uh, to those around him. And uh, if they didn't, ask them to bring it in. Yeah. Um. And so he he was a crafty marketer. Right. And so him putting posters out there, advertisements out there of some description. Uh, and, and were single malls, were you saying that they weren't even available or they just weren't discussed or talked about? or? or yeah, they, they were available, not with any regularity, but it wasn't until the late 50s, early 60s that the Glenlivet beca- it was the Glenlivet, right? Not Glenfiddich? Uh, I thought it was Glenfiddich, but you're running with Glenlivet. So. Yeah, see now, here, here's some... So it's like the 30s and the 40s, were there single malt connoisseurs that were just weirdos that were... No. No, no because it was rot gut, right? The, the huh. reason you were blending it is because you needed a flavor profile yep, that people really wanted old. to drink, uh-huh. right? You, you were, you were you know, sanding out the rough edges by bringing multiples together. And it was only 
and, and you see this in everything, music, food, booze, you see that pendulum move where, okay, the blends, the blends are getting better, blends are very good, I'm enjoying my blend, but what would it be like if you deconstructed this? Yeah. What if we actually pulled out the components of the blend, what would that be like? So which came first, a quality single malt or the desire to have a quality single malt? Uh, you would have to say the desire to have it. Uh -huh. I, I don't think, even if it was being lost in a blend, I don't think it was showing up in people's glasses, mm. right? For people to say, we should have more of this. Uh -huh. Instead, I think it was... So you don't even think, you think a distiller would be like, I'm selling all this stuff, but I'm keeping the really good... I'm just sitting at home at the end of the day and I drink my own this. So that fits a little bit with what you were saying about what if you showed up at a distillery pre-visitor yes. center. Yeah. The distillery yeah. manager, if you were lucky, would bring you into his office and he would just pour you cask samples. Uh -huh. And he would say, I've got this and I've got this. And, and this might people from... who live within a 10 mile radius of that distillery be drinking the same thing or no? No, not at all. Well, we, I we would... do know about Christmas time. <laughs> where they would yeah. yeah they were yeah, treat the community you mean yes. well, yeah, yeah yeah i mean uh, one of the one of the things that that i enjoy going to scotland in january time is if you're in the right place at the right time and you know the right person they say oh we've, we've got some whiskey for you and they'll take out a bottle of iron brew and, uh -huh. and, oh. and in that bottle of iron brew, or a milk be, jug, or a milk uh -huh. jug. <laughs> now we, we, have, we have a friend who works at, at a distillery who has another friend that works at another distillery, and they just had a few jugs of. But but this this brings us to to what what I wanted to get at with with context. And do, do you want to pour the the unlabeled sample here? Yeah, yeah. this um, is something we haven't bottled. I don't mm. want to rush you. Oh, I thought it was empty. From my angle, it looked empty. It's just pale. Gotcha, so gotcha. We're, we're switching over to rye whiskey. Oh, good. Um, so this this one is a 14-year-old MGP rye, and it spent the last six weeks or so in Tokai casks, so uh -huh. Hungarian dessert wine. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, Dean Spanley? Do you know this movie, Dean Spanley? Mm -hmm. It's... Uh, Tokai figures prominently in the plot. What does? Tokai. Oh, okay. It's got it's Sam Neill and Peter O'Toole. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's it's hard to define what kind of movie it is. It's kind of a one of a kind thing, but I would guess maybe fifteen or twenty years, something like that. It was one of Peter O'Toole's last okay. movies, and and when you see him walking on the screen, you just think like, why did they do this to this poor old man? But by the end, it's I mean it's like. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Dean Spanley are like the two hmm. Peter O'Toole movies that I think of now. Okay. But the Dean Spanley character is certain crucial reveries are triggered by certain vintages of 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 Tokai. Of Tokai <laughs> specifically, it's like Tokai that was made for the Hungarian royal family, so it has to be a imperial Tokai. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so That's awesome. I still never tried it, but it <laughs> figures prominently in my romantic landscape. Oh. Yeah. Well, well, this will get so you this close. is from Tokai. Yeah, enjoy yeah, so, Tokai. Yeah, cask. so four, 14 years and just, you know, new a new barrel, and then about six weeks or so in the Tokai yeah. casks. And yeah. where? Where did that happen? Have you heard of Whistlepig? You know Whistlepig, yeah. right? So, distilled in Indiana. And it's do okay. You, it's do fine. You, <laughs> they mature in upstate New York, because they're, they're based out of Vermont, but they're, they warehouse just over the border in uh -huh. New York. And then when they're ready to do something with the whiskey, they bring it into Vermont, and then they start just playing around with it. 
And so we've got another release that is rye finished in vermouth casks uh-huh. and, and rum casks. And just, it changes the flavor yep. in such oh, a beautiful sure. way. So you'll get like such Smells lovely sweetness unique. out of this. Uh-huh. It's about 50% alcohol. Uh, 57 on this. 50, yeah, 57. Oh yeah, that's really good. 57.7 on this. 114, 115 proof for those proof scorers at home. So they, Whistle Pig, they both distill, but then they do, you know, what a lot of the other brands do. They buy whiskey from this big distillery in Indiana. They put it in their bottle and, hey, here's Whistle Pig's whiskey. Meanwhile, they didn't make it, but they're honest about where they get it. They're honest about how they finish it and so forth. They're, They're more transparent. And so in this case... It's an odd collaboration of a distillery that purchased someone else's whiskey that wants to work with an independent bottler uh-huh. ourselves. Yeah. It's this weird, convoluted yeah. family tree to get this <laughs> into a bottle. Yeah. But, but all with full transparency. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so one of the things that, I, that I'm intrigued by with you mm. is, is your... And, and, you might not use the word hatred, but maybe you will. Um, your your serious dislike for digital media mm. and the shop of I did this yeah, the yeah, other yeah, day. Shopify. I did yeah. this the other day Fucking with hate good Shopify. enough. Good enough name. Yeah. I did this the same right. <laughs> Spotify. Yeah. Um, and and you know my, my kid's a big SoundCloud user, um, and I and I wanted to explore that with you because in in listening to you in, in this conversation. I'm getting that sense of authenticity from you. Yeah. This the sense of legitimacy. Right. That you want to get back to the the very heart of something. And that is the heart you want to explore, not the outer kernel that could have been manufactured in some way or yeah. you know, or, or or maybe not, you know. Um and I was curious how that reflects on your music. Yeah. Where in listening to you, and, and again, I'm going to use another word that you may or may not like, but I get a, a sense of of the minstrel tradition from you, and I mean that in the UK sense, not the American sense uh-huh. of of the traveling minstrel, yeah. right? And you you talk about being a lyricist, yeah. And and I think your music is so wonderfully lyric driven, mm. with with just a, a subtle framing from the music behind it, yeah. That would you prefer? To be somebody who's only in cities playing your music for people who are sitting in front of you? Is that the context that you want for your music? And is that what digital media gets in the way of? Or is something else happening um, entirely? It doesn't, because, you know, in, in talking about, you know, those experiences that we all had with recorded media growing mm-hmm. up and still ideally, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's those are powerful experiences that are not any worse than you know, many of your most powerful experiences ex- having live music played right right in front of you. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to, you know, discount that or, or, or vilify it in any way. But I was in, there, when you all were describing, I think it was before we turned the microphone on, you were describing some of your processes and how you relate to distilleries and how you mm-hmm. come up with your collaborations. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and something popped into my head about one reason why I do dislike Shopify. And that is, you know, because a parallel to, yeah. to some of the, you know, motivations and, and the ways that I approach getting my work done, you know, has direct relationships to the way you all were describing uh, your relationship to your work in that. And, and, and what 
you know, Shopify negates this completely is um, like when we were looking to finally put a, a large portion of the catalog on that hadn't been on until about a year and a half or two years ago. Mm-hmm. We, I was like, well, you know, this is okay if we can even in the metadata, like put all of the, you know, the songwriters and the various musicians on there and that way someone could yeah. search and, and, and we were looking into it and that's impossible. You can't do that. Wow. Oh, wow. Why is that impossible? Is it a lot of information? No. Yeah. It's because it's divide and conquer. They, you know, yeah. it, it puts too much power into the hands of the listeners. A huge motivator for doing what I do, in, in addition to wanting to do something that, you know, to make a living that I have some facility at mm-hmm. and have some experience with, mm-hmm. is to interact with other people who make music or appreciate music, alive or dead. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different ways of doing that. You know, you can do covers of songs, and or, and you're you're talking about like. I like to play with certain musicians, collaborate with certain musicians who I have an intense admiration for, partly because I want to be in the same room with them and I want to pick their brain and I want to see what, you know, how, you know, can I keep up with them? What can I learn from them? And then there's obviously certain times when it's like, well, I also want to increase the strength of my musical community by introducing someone who may know what I do but doesn't know what this woman does that I want to sing with mm-hmm. huh. and then they hear her and then they might buy her records you know or yep. to cover yep. somebody's songs or do whole records of covers of somebody's songs it's just like I don't know enough people who are you know conversant with the music of Merle Haggard for whatever reason mm-hmm. yeah. of course there are millions who are yeah. but I want some people who are maybe actively involved in a certain kind of experimentation or collaborative music playing to realize like this guy is you know you know he's great but you don't really know that he's great he's exactly. actually great yeah. like <laughs> all caps not yeah. just one cap and not just you know lowercase letters uh-huh. he's great and that's not you know if i do a cover of even you know mama tried and it's on shopify they don't say this is a merle haggard song oh, okay that's oh evil okay yeah I mean, i'm with because you because it's easy data they could put it on there yeah you don't know the songwriters they don't identify the songwriters they don't even identify the record that is so if, sure. if, if a if an artist made a concept record in 1973 and they put that whole record on Shopify, it's not necessarily when each individual song comes out, so it's not necessarily identified as being a part of a larger piece of work. Yeah. Okay. It's like we were ripping this apart and so that we own all these little bits and you don't know that they're a part of something bigger, whether it's just a record or a tradition or a community or anything. Yeah. Sure. And so that's just an that's an example, like sure. without having to go into a lot of the larger, yeah. you know, obvious examples about, you know, artist compensation or, or mm-hmm. owner compensation. That's just like it's not about music. It's just not about music. Sure. Do you think sure. do you think that it's purposeful? Lazy? Yes. You think it's purposeful? I think it's not lazy. It's purposeful because it's dividing it's it's basically wanting to put wanting to get people wanting to get the power out of the listener's hands out of yeah. the audience's hands yeah. so that they have all the power and they get people which they have done successfully yeah. to get rid of their record stores as a resource to get rid of the ability to converse actively with people to get rid of your own music collection so that you have to all you know I don't need these records I've got it it's all there uh-huh. like it's all there and then uh-huh. you don't have it anymore Yeah, and you don't yeah. understand that a, a, a record has a lot more than just music on it mm-hmm. you know e- even the you know I oftentimes return also to you know Luckily, you're working in an industry that, so far, it can't be reproduced and downloaded. <laughs> Correct. Um, mm. So you have to, you know, you have to be here in Kentucky yes. to do certain things. Yes. I think 
audiences are under increasingly under the false assumption that music is something that kind of appears out of nowhere and doesn't have any context whatsoever. Interesting. And it has so much context mm-hmm. in every step of the way, including the marketing. Mm-hmm. The marketing is a big context, and if yeah. it's done in, in an inspired way and with creativity and accountability, it's not ne- marketing isn't necessarily a bad thing. Okay. Uh, you know, like marketing bourbon wouldn't be a bad thing except that it's done like... We just, how do we make, what do people want to spend money on? Not like, how do we actually trace it to what's a good reason to buy our whiskey? Yeah. But it's yeah. just like, well, what would people think is a good reason to buy yeah. our yeah. whiskey? Yeah. 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 I, I would actually add on to your, your music metaphor there where we have, I would say, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 whiskey consumers uh-huh. don't think beyond the bottle that's just sitting in front right. of them. And, and it's very interesting when we go around the country conducting tastings where people are then given a connection back to a geographical location. Yeah. And they've never really conceived of that before. Yeah. And there's, there's a story I tell a, a lot, and this will be ideal for you. I took a tour group to Lafroig. Yeah. And we're with Vicky Stevens, who at that time was managing the visitor center. And we stood in front of the spirit safe in the still house at Lafroig, watching the new make spirit run through the still safe. And she gathered everybody in the group and we all huddled around the spirit safe. And she said, every single drop of Lafroig ever sold anywhere in this world uh-huh. has run through that point right there. Yeah. And everybody in the group got goosebumps at the <laughs> exact same time yeah. because the the context of it was inescapable. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think as much as, yes, we're, we're not in a downloadable whiskey world. Yet. We are, yet, <laughs> we are in a go to your local liquor store and pull the bottle yeah, off the shelf world. Yeah. And, I, and I don't think that necessarily translates back to where it came from. No, it, from it's, for it's, it's, a majority yeah, of drinkers. It's, that's another, yeah, that's another issue that I kind of have with, with these big the big companies where, you know, it used to be exciting for a variety of reasons to go anywhere and look at a record store or a liquor store. What have they got? Exactly. And it's not exciting, you know, and, and then you go to one and be like, this is a gold mine for scotch, or this is a yeah. gold mine yep. for yep. this kind of record. And it's not exciting to go somewhere and find, say, well, they have everything. It just isn't. It's, all of a sudden, it's just like, no, and they kind of have nothing. It's those It's those little honey holes that you find, like... Again, just reversing time back when there were there were record shops, and if you found the right record shop with an owner that gave a shit, you're going in and you're finding stuff that you never even heard of, and Japanese editions, yeah. and you know this odd seven inch, and oh, this one was printed on on white vinyl, like, yeah. and then <laughs> you, you can get find it. weird and crazy things, yeah, sure on Shopify, but you can't then ask somebody yeah, exactly. to tell you something exactly about where it came from and why it's there and. Yep. What came before it and what comes after but it. But the shop owner, a good shop owner, will be able owner. to tell you all about that. Oh, and he was in this band yeah. and she was in that. And then you, and now you found another band to to go down that rabbit hole and, and figure out what they were. And yeah, yeah it's, but, but, it's down to algorithms. And, and, and I think, but I think we've also entered into that world of the instant expert. And we hear this a lot in whiskey. And Joshua and I got our start in a very similar way where we were two chaps who simply had access to the internet, who started tasting whiskeys yeah. and posting notes, yep. right? Just posting reviews, talking about it. It was a passion, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. 
And I think there's something about going into that liquor store where the person who's in charge of the spirits that are on the shelves is invested in it yep. and has something to say that's of interest. Yep. And if you just simply go from liquor store A to liquor store B to liquor store C and it's the same inventory at every single one, then that's the beginning of the death of something yep. that we are passionate about. And I think we're far enough along now that we've seen that death in the music industry yep. where the, the good music store is few and far between. There's a great one just down the street here. You all can stop by. There after. You go. It's called uh, Guest Room Records. It's, oh, nice. It's really go. nice. And, and you know, every, every business, of course, needs all the support it can get uh -huh. right now. But, uh, uh -huh. yeah, but they're, they're, they're great new and, and used records. Oh. And they have dollar bins outside right now. That oh, they, that's awesome. It's like a COVID era... <laughs> Add on to their business model. It's really cool. COVID wrinkle. I got I got a couple of whiskey questions for you, real okay. quick. One, when we because you were talking to Luke Froy, and I just want to the yes. how old is their label? The label itself, because yeah. one thing that I always, I mean I always oh, snicker I whenever yeah. I see sure it gives me such glee to see that black and white sure like almost ugly but not quite label, sure. and just to think that. Somebody at some point has made the decision to not update it or make it nicer or anything Absolutely. like that. Did it begin that way? Was that a, was it a commercial choice to begin with? Yeah, I, I would know? I would say it has to be probably the seventies for it. We've done seventies tastings of of Lafroigs with it uh, exact with, same. with that similar label. Yeah, yeah. I mean there have yeah. been subtle you, changes yeah. over the years. When you put them side by side by side by side, you yeah. see some yeah. modernization happening. Yeah, there is. I mean, the, they, I know they have all the variations with different little color elements now. Correct. But just the basic. The Correct. Basic one is the no, it's no because we we did a nineteen seventies tasting in Glasgow, and the the labels are recognizable as the Lafroig labels. It's so yeah. cool. I remember like designing record sleeves, you know, when we first started and thinking like talking to the record label and, you know, because the record label that I work primarily in the United States is Drag City and it's a profit split thing, which means that every, you know, once we spend all the money, the money starts coming in and once we start making back money, they make 50, we make 50%. Oh, I gotcha. So I was always thinking like, well, how cool can we make a record sleeve with as few colors as possible because the printing process is cheaper. Exactly. You know, and, <laughs> exactly. Like before, you know, and still, but have it still yeah. be, you know, because yeah. I love record art and have uh -huh. still be great record art. Yeah. But, you know, and, and when I look at the Lefroy bottle, I just think, like, they just nailed it. They're just like, yeah. we don't have to spend yeah. that little, you know, extra five pence a bottle or 20 pence a bottle or whatever, you know, or a fraction of a, of, a, of a pee a bottle. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. And it's Absolutely. great. And the whiskey speaks for itself because it's just all about, it's like saying, don't look here. Look inside the bottle. Yep. It's inside yeah. the bottle. Yep. It's not outside yep. the bottle. Yep. Yep. I love yep. the I.W. Harper's label for the same reason. Yep. Yep. It, it has that nice established history yep. that you can go back to now, 1930s I.W. Harper bottles that are essentially recognizable yep. in that same lineage. Yeah, But I, is it black and white? It's gold, gold. Isn't it? Yeah, see that costs money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and then we're drinking this, which is this yes. is really great. Thank you. This rye. Thanks, Thank and you. I've got a, a, a niggling question that's bothered me for a little while now. Um, so the one of the times in the past fifteen or twenty years that I got really excited about a bourbon was the first time somebody, and I think it was about fifteen years ago maybe, somebody poured me a Rowan's Creek. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. And it blew my mind. I loved it. And for a few years, I drank it, you know, almost exclusively. When I would go and buy a bottle of bourbon, that's what I would buy. And the bottle, the cork was terrible. Like, it was oh, the most okay. difficult to open. Like, you had the, had a sort of a maker's marky-like thing, but it crumbled. It was dry. Yeah, it was yeah, so yeah. difficult okay. to break open. And then at a certain point, maybe about five years ago, 
it started to taste completely different. Not yep. the same. Now, and I and it was and I was just like, okay, I don't like this anymore. Whatever, no mm. loss. Um, I mean, it's a loss, but I don't care. And it got easier to open as well. But then, <laughs> yeah. s- some Norwegian friends were so, they were like, please bring me a bottle of Willet Rye. Yeah. Uh, and I brought them a bottle of Willet Rye. I tasted it, and I was like, this is the New Rowan's Creek. This is the same yep. liquor. Yep. This Willet Rye yep. is the same liquor as the Rowan's Creek bourbon. What yeah. the fuck is up with that? So, because whether it's Willet or, or Rowan's Creek, they don't... Well, Willet now distills their own, but they always purchased from other distilleries. Uh-huh. It's back to that old American tradition of... But a rye and a bourbon shouldn't be the same. They shouldn't taste, but but if, if a distillery is doing its job then you should find a thread that says, oh, I recognize that. I recognize it from that distillery. The closest I've found to it is the Four Roses single barrel. I think it's single, single barrel is the one that I like. Yeah, I so that's, but those, but those are always going to change. Those are always going to change because Four Roses has 10 different mash bills. So you have different amount of corn, different amount of rye, and then different yeast strains. Yeah. And so... Given the, the different ratios of grain, along with the different types of yeast, it creates 10 different recipes, 10 different flavor profiles. Yep. So if you're getting the single barrels from Four Roses and you like them, look on the side of your bottle. There'll be like a four-letter code like OBSF or OESK or something like this. Yeah, something romantic. And that, and that like, you can... All the bottles come with like these little... Uh, Annie, Little Orphan Annie decoder rings to, to let you know what that recipe means. Uh-huh. And if you like that recipe, just go to your store and find another oh, cool. one that is of that recipe and That's you'll, nice to know. Yeah. you'll always be happy. Cognizant of your time, there's yeah. a question that I desperately want to ask you and, and then if there's a question Joshua desperately yeah. wants to ask you. Um, now, what was the question? As we've talked this afternoon about being pragmatic and responding in a pragmatic way to the world around you. What does the pragmatic musician, Will Oldham, look like in in 2021? Mm. What, what, (laughs) you already, (laughs) oh boy, I've asked too much of a question. Well, it's a really challenging question, but yeah. 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 Like, and so, so with, because clearly you're a pragmatic chap. Yeah. Clearly there's a, an aspect of romanticism yeah. to you. And then there's that aspect of getting at the heart that we talked about yeah. earlier. But given that we are in this digital world, yeah. what, what do you do going forward? What would make you happy going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's a question that I'm actively engaged with now because uh, you know, I'll say that you know, in the typical fashion of any practicing musician... We have just finished a record that, you know, I'll just say that it's really strong, you know? Like, I believe like you. What I'm, like, I was going to say, like, that, that it's, you know, some of the best work of my life, that, that kind of thing. But, yeah. um, but So one that was just released or No, no, something, something that will come out. Oh, right. Yeah. Won't come out until 2021. Okay. Ah, okay. okay. I think uh, there might be a song that will come out at the end of the, this year, but partly because, you know, everybody's lost you know manufacturers aren't are, yeah. aren't fully up and running mm-hmm. and distributors aren't up and running yep. and stores aren't up and running but even then it's a, it's such a strange i'm not i can't even think of a good metaphor for 
having this thing that we've made and not understanding what its existence mm. should be or could be or mm-hmm. can be or will be and, and my relationship to that as well. You know, will we be in the, you know, what's our leadership going to be like in the United States? Will we be allowed to play shows in front of people? Yeah. Even, but playing shows in front of people is like, you know, I, I pragmatically, I like the fact that most romanticism exists because there is a there's a basis for it sure and then a lot of people come in and just you know take the top layers and say well this is everything that it is and people also look at it you know the shopify's or 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 the live nations will just say like we see how we can capitalize off of this and fuck the romanticism fuck the bottom part we'll just continue to take the top and everybody will if we call it this everyone will agree that it is this thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so and I've watched that happen, you know, over the course of my life and working in, in music. And, and what do you do with a, yeah, what do you do with a record that you love and is strong yeah. in 2021? And, but can't go out and personally share it. Well, it, because, because so or much of my relationship know, yeah. to, to music, you know, like I've always had mixed feelings. Like I have understood that people want you to, play live mm. and I always take playing live as, as an opportunity to go out interact with people see places interact with other musicians have a, a lab on stage that people can witness because for me there's so much power in in recorded music and, yeah. and there's so much you know there are things being a big Leonard Cohen fan and having yeah. seen him play three times I still from all those three times and it never got close to the depth of the experience that I've had in listening to his recordings. They were, oh, wow. they were wonderful and interesting shows, yeah. but I, I don't have, you know, I'm not, I don't, yeah. so I think it is a different beast altogether. Like I don't okay. necessarily feel like there are people like, you know, Ralph Stanley or Jesus Lizard mm-hmm. or Dick Gahan or something like that, where you go and, and seeing them play that you, you witness something very special and I like to think that when we go out on the road, we make something, but it's it's just a different thing. Like yes, so we have this record, and it's one thing. Playing yeah. live is a different thing. Yes. Hopefully, someone will come and have a great experience at the show. But it's just coincidental that that there's also a record because the record is is its own thing, and you're supposed to yeah. like nowadays also because musicians get paid much more for playing live than they do for recorded music. Sure they tend to make records more right now. And because records aren't consumed as full things, they're, they're more like calling cards or brochures for what they do mm-hmm. as opposed to being what they do actually. Like what they do is a live thing. And I think still like, I still write songs to be songs. I make records to be records and I play shows to be shows. Yeah, They're three different aspects of the same exactly. thing. So yeah. I don't worry about, I just worry about how is somebody, will somebody pick up this record, you know, and just think like, how will they pick it up? And will they listen to it from beginning to end? Just because I know that it's good huh. that way. You know, it's yeah. not going to, I don't, I won't say it's a shame and the, those were the good old days and these, I just think like, this is a good record and, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, it's like a good sign painter or, or, you know, somebody who knows how to shoe horses so that for the best all day smooth wagon ride from this village to that village, you know, I can still do it. Yeah. It's a shame that I know how to do it, but you know, it's not like I'm less l- lamenting the passage of time or yeah. progress. It's just like, 
what do you do with those emotions? Like, we made this record that's fucking great. Yeah. And yeah. so what? Yeah. It's fine. You know, yeah. it's fine. It's just like, I'm not going to, you know, I've got a daughter. That's, that's great, too. And, yeah. <laughs> and I get to sing every, you know, I can sing either privately or in some way, or shape or form every day. Nobody's taking that away from me. Yeah. But at the same time, what do you do with these things that you make? And, yeah. you know, it'd be like if you were making great whiskeys and there was a yeah. new wave of, of even, you know, of a truly like top to bottom prohibition that was a heartfelt thing in, in communities. And they were just like, no, no, we like this. We like these drugs, these pharmaceutical drugs. They're so much better. And everybody agreed. And you were just like, okay, all right. <laughs> All right, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> we, we do have this, but it's fine. We still have this wonderful thing over here. Yeah, we do have here. this wonderful thing that is undeniably wonderful, but, uh, but if you try to force someone to drink it, they're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to get anything out of it. But, but it's interesting, in, in listening to you, you've, you've taken the role, and just as you mentioned Leonard Cohen here, you've taken the role of being music consumer seriously. Yeah. And you've taken the role of being music producer Seriously, yeah, and it sounds like you've hit upon a disconnect where there are fewer people taking the role of music consumer seriously. It's, I guess, mm. also you know, knowing that, like you know, like somebody who is given a superstore to go in and buy whiskey, they don't understand what they're missing. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. and they get, they, yeah. and they still get a wonderful experience. Yeah. And so what do you do with that? Like, yeah. they get a wonderful experience. And you can't deny, like, somebody who digs deep on a streaming service, mm -hmm. they're potentially going to have some eye-opening, revelatory experiences mm -hmm. that won't necessarily compare to... Not only... I guess, I guess it's losing a relationship to accountability that makes everybody, you know, a stronger and more valuable member of any given community, even your own family. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think... That's it. Is worrying, not worrying, but just being aware, you know, that that science fiction yeah. novels that talk about, you know, docile masses doing exactly what they're told to do, yeah. is happening, and it's just like, well, you know, just then go back to those books and see what happens next, and you know, and don't don't worry about it. Uh -huh. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting watching my my daughters discover music. Yeah. And they're discovering music in a very different way than the three of us. Yeah. And likely a lot of our listeners discovered music where you, you had a shop and you you had friends that would share music with you or you had a record store owner that would make suggestions and somehow you you'd find your way down this rabbit hole and then you'd you'd make you'd make friends who had similar interests and and then you'd get even deeper into it. And, you know, here we are, we're month six into COVID and we're just staying home with our family. Yep. And so my kids are connecting with their friends electronically. They're creating their Spotify lists, their Apple music lists. And they'll say, dad, you have, you have to listen to my playlist. Yeah. And so they'll, there'll be these songs and some of them I'm not really loving, but some of the songs I'm like, I never heard of this. This yeah. is fantastic. Do you have any of the any of their other stuff? Yeah. Like, yeah, we don't. We have this song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's such and what can you tell me about it? It's yeah. three minutes and thirty seven seconds, and it's called this. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's such a weird, it's such an unusual way to 
consume music and I, I was I didn't really want to use that word but I think that's what's happening they're consuming that music yeah. in that way but interestingly and I told Jason this story as we were when we got into Kentucky yesterday I was telling him a story about my 11 year old uh. we were outside beautiful summer day um, we're on the shoreline just beautiful breezes just having a great time and I put on your latest album uh-huh. And my 11-year-old, and we're listening to it, and she's hula-hooping, and we're playing horseshoes. It was, just became the soundtrack to her evening. And my youngest daughter said, she said, I've heard you play him before. I said, yeah, yep. Yeah. And she said, he, I don't know what it is, but somehow he's making old music sound new and good. <laughs> and I loved that. Yeah, I absolutely lo- like. She was forced to think about what she was listening to. Yeah, right. It's different than any other thing right. on her playlist. And now she's like, she calls it old music because that's what mom and dad listen to, yeah. right? It's you know. But it was. I just thought it was so interesting that she made that comment maybe six songs into the album. Yeah. And so she, it wasn't just the one song. It was song after song after song. And she was listening to music in a different way, hearing it in a different way. Yeah. And I'm just hoping that they'll get to that point. I, I am nervous that people have just changed the way they discover and listen to and share music. That yeah. does make me nervous. And at the same time, like I think I like that description, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, that you're child gave because because you know in in, like i i i like the fact that you know in in writing any song or making any record which is different from most live Mm -hmm. shows um is that there's always the knowledge that they exist in the future yeah like i'm writing a song now but it doesn't really exist it doesn't exist you know or making a record doesn't exist until it's been heard by somebody yep and so it's knowing like you know, I'm. I don't know what will happen with this record, but at the same time, I know that my. You know, I'm in the. I'm. You know, I'm in this card game in 2021. Mm-hmm. Some way, mm-hmm. am I gonna lose my shirt? Maybe. We'll have a great. You know, I don't know, but I know yeah. that there's something, and and it's gonna. It's just beginning, and it's just. Be, you know, and is it beginning to? Yeah, mm. to be a f- weird faint echo, but it's yeah. it's not. It's not about anything past it's totally like this is me trying to participate in the future that's what each record is yeah it's yeah. not it's it's not it is related to old yeah it's related to traditions and other people and work that other people have done and my life up to this point and other people's lives up to this point but really it's mm-hmm. like okay if we have to live next year or five years or ten more years this mm-hmm. is part of our, our, you know our armament or oh, something okay. like that okay you know it's it's about the records are all about the future. Yeah. They're not about... Yeah. And it's cool listening to, especially like field recordings, and to think they didn't even know that they were making music that was about the future. Mm-hmm. And they had no clue. Because they, did, they didn't yeah, even know right. recorded mediums existed, yeah. really, when these songs with this music was developed. Yeah. It was only of the moment. Yeah, yeah. But it really was about the future. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much, Will. Thank That's you really all. Really appreciate much. that. And that was wonderful, really. That, yeah, that yeah. ride was fantastic. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Good. You. Good. Glad yeah. you like it. Will, thank you so much for for spending time with us, for allowing us in your in your home and in your on your back porch. 
and spending as much time as he did, because we know you're a, a busy guy with many irons in the fire, as they say. You know, it's interesting. You and I, Jason, spent a good hour and a half with him. It, well, a little over an hour and a half, but we recorded about an hour and a half of conversation and, and some music. And, you know, there was a song that he sang, and, and, and we'll, we'll play that a little later on. But for as much time as we had with him, I didn't get to ask nearly as many questions as I, as I wanted to because he was, I, I got the feeling he was just as curious about whiskey as we were about him and his music and his process. And Well, what do we tell everybody we line up for One Nation Under Whiskey? This isn't a Q&A session. Nope. We're not coming in with pre-prepared questions. We're going to sit down and we're going to have a whiskey chat with you. And in this instance, speaking to a, a musician like Will Oldham, we said the same thing. We're just coming in to have a conversation. Wherever the conversation goes will be valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that led to him asking his own questions. And I love that type of back and forth that we can mm-hmm. have, yeah. which... Gosh, if you can't have a good conversation over a good glass of whiskey, right. when can you have a good conversation? So, yeah, yeah, it 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 made me almost feel thankful that I couldn't ask those questions because I'd I'd rather have a conversation than a Q and A session, and I'd rather have the opportunity to maybe speak with him again. And, and ask those and I was questions gonna say that. Day, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Will understands this, but that <laughs> felt like a part one. It just felt like the beginning of a, a longer, larger whiskey chat. So, yeah. so sorry, Will. We, we will be back on your porch again <laughs> if the invitation arises. Uh-huh, we shall darken and your door again. Before we transitioned into the the chatting portion, uh, we said we would come back and and share another couple of favorite songs with with our dear listeners, and and you you started the mm-hmm. the first two on the front end. I'm going to start the next two on this end, and so my next track is from a 2018 album called Songs of Love and Horror where Will went through his own back catalogue and rearranged some of his own music mm-hmm. and, and presented it. And, and so there's a, there's a song on here that is, uh, I think, you know, one of his most famous songs mm-hmm. called I See a Darkness. Yeah, yep. And the, the reason that I wanted to select this is, again, not only is it singer-songwriter, not only is it a song that, that pauses me in my steps so that I can listen to it, not only is it, is it lyric-driven, but this song was covered by Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes, and, and many, many music lovers say this, when Johnny Cash covers one of your songs, it becomes Johnny Cash's song. Hmm. And and you and I were discussing this in the car uh, in Kentucky, mm-hmm. that this to me remains firmly a Will Oldham song. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, and while Johnny Cash does a, a wonderful, wonderful version of it, yeah. I still 
prefer the Will Oldham version of it. And I still return to Will Oldham doing it, even to the point of Will representing it as part of his own back catalogue is still a better version Mm -hmm. than the Johnny Cash Mm -hmm. version. And I'm not disparaging Johnny in any way, shape or form. I love, 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 passionately love Johnny Cash. But I See a Darkness, as sung by Will Oldham, is as close to perfection as I think you're going to get in a song. Well, you are my friend And can you see Many times We've been out drinking And many times we've shared our thoughts But did you version so much jason and and for, for those people who also enjoyed it just in case you want to look for it you know whether it's at a local record shop or if you want to download it from from apple or something like that uh it's not under bonnie prince billy it's under will oldham which i found interesting because he doesn't really release many albums under Will Oldham. It's it's usually Bonnie Prince Billy. So if you're interested in that, it's it's Will Oldham. And the album title again was Songs of Love and Horror. Songs of Love and Horror for this 2018 version. Correct, yeah. But so you and I were discussing this is from the I See a Darkness album. And, yep, and, and that's what I was about to say. So the original version came out in uh, 1999. And... As I understand Takes it, me back. Right? Takes you back. And I think, and I could be wrong, uh, because here we are 21 years later, uh, but I think that that was his first album released as Bonnie Prince Billy. I think he went from Palace to Palace Brothers and Palace Music, and maybe there was a Will Oldham release in there, and then it became Bonnie Prince Billy. And I remember getting that or hearing about this album and my friend saying like I don't know what's going on with Will Oldham but now he's he's changed his name to Bonnie <laughs> Prince Billy and it felt like we had to do sleuthing like it felt mm-hmm. like we like wait is this him is it that and then you hear the voice and you know oh yeah that's 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 Will Oldham okay now he goes by Bonnie Prince Billy that's cool you know <laughs> what you said before and and I want I want to get to my final track but what you said before I I, I thought was uh, it's a well said remark when you said when Johnny Cash covers your song it becomes Johnny Cash's song and I think that there are two very clear examples where that where that statement is is very true so when he covered um, Rusty Cage by Soundgarden 
that became a Johnny Cash song. I still love Soundgarden, but I'm going to listen to the Johnny Cash version over it. And then his version of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. Now I, have, <laughs> I was going to say that one if you right? didn't. <laughs> you know, I, I have to say, I've, I've got my own prejudices. I have always thought and continue to think that Nine Inch Nails is but he, he took Trent, he, you're welcome on the show anytime. <laughs> anytime. But but what Johnny Cash was able to do, which is what Will was able to do with Wolf Among Wolves, is all of the sudden the lyrics were on a pedestal. And the music behind the lyrics that Johnny Cash put fit the lyrics better than Nine Inch Nails. I felt the pain when Johnny was singing it. I didn't feel the pain when Trent Reznor was singing it. it would, the, the Johnny mm-hmm. Cash version, I feel, is just so much more meaningful. But that's mm-hmm. my own opinion. Yeah. The, the last song that I want to play shows, I think, a bit more of the, the funner. Funner? More fun? Is it funner or more fun? You Americans, you love the word funner. I I never heard the word funner until I moved to the United States. We would always say more fun. But you can have funner. We're in America. It's okay. still you're, you're you're still free enough to say funner. Well, I think this is more funner. Funner? Is that better? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Much. Um, it's more funner. <laughs> so this this next song I think is just a fun song to blast in your car and sing along with and just ignore you know ignore the world while paying attention to traffic (laughs) ignoring your children (laughs) screaming in the back seat (laughs) uh but this song is uh or the clip i'm about to play from this song uh the song itself is called uh devil's throat and it's from his new album called i've made a place a bad captain won't give out good orders a bad sideshow won't show good mutilations A bad emperor won't redraw good borders, oh no A bad tailor won't make good alterations A bad ranger won't put out good fires A bad farmer won't raise what she needs A bad actor won't announce he retires, oh no Bad Samaritan can't do a good deed That's what there is, that's all she wrote My friend, you won't hear a good songs From the devil's throat I just absolutely love it. It's so much fun to sing along with. I think sometimes... He has very poignant lyrics, and yeah. I, I quite often, I, I like that he'll often sing from the perspective of someone else, right? The perspective of a woman, the perspective of a victim of something. And then sometimes I like it when he's just having a bit of fun, and I, I feel as if this song, he's having a bit of fun, even though some of the lyrics are, are, can be serious, there's also a good bit of fun in there too, and I just, I love it. I love it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Getting to to share some of this with our listeners. You you and I have said along the way here with different episodes of One Nation Under Whiskey, when we do step away from from someone in the whiskey industry, 
and we have the the Garth Enos, the Adolf Fai, the Matthew Rees, the Daniel Whiteson, you know, and, and now Will Oldham. You know, when we step away, just have another kind of chat, our listeners come with us. Mm-hmm. And just like they trust us on our whiskey selections, so many of them trust us on our guest selections as well. Mm-hmm. And so to, to those of you who are already fans of Will Oldham, Bonnie Prince Billy, Palace Music, you know, I, I hope you're enjoying this as much as we are. And for those of you who are hearing about Will Oldham for the first time, I hope you agree that it's been worth your time and that you've enjoyed the chat and the music. And, and yes, we will return to close out the episode with with Will Oldham performing for us uh, and for our listeners uh, on his back porch at the end of this yeah. episode. I want to return to the conversation you and I were having about preciousness regarding bottles. Uh, As do I. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listening back to our conversation with Will, it it was very obvious to me that he's, he's concerned about the way people consume music, how they, how they acquire it, how they consume it and how it, plays a part in their lives. And to me, it sounded as if sounded as if he much prefers people get the full album and listen to the full album. I took it as, you know, if you download a song, well, you know, hopefully that brings you in to listen to more, right? Which is part of the reason why we brought, uh, you know, a guilty pleasure of mine is that if I'm introducing people to Will Oldham or if we're introducing people to Will Oldham, that that's the hook, that they, that we're somehow bringing people in to that world of Will Oldham's music, right? And so I imagine as a musician, he has that hope. But when you have that hope, you're treating music just as precious as we would treat a bottle number two, right? If I'm going to open a bottle, or if I'm saving a bottle for a a special occasion, I'm not going to drink it alone. I I want other people to join in. It has to be momentous, right? And when you're listening to music, if you're doing it properly for the sake of the music, well, you want to do that in a special way too. Like set aside time for yourself to actually listen. Don't let it be background music and you know, and I even said, to, in, you know, in our conversation to Will, you know, that, that, you know, my family were listening to his latest album and it became the, you know, the, the soundtrack to that evening. Well, it's not as if that's the only way I listen to the music or that album or any of his albums, but for that day, it was just the perfect soundtrack to our lives. And we listened to the album all the way through and my daughters were actively listening to it. And, I, and there's, it puts a preciousness on music. And, and I think that's how we have to, that's not maybe, not necessarily how we have to treat whiskey, but in some cases that is how we treat whiskey, with a preciousness. And if we're going to open that bottle, it's going to be in the right instance with the right people so we can all appreciate it. Which transitions beautifully to what I was about to say about finishing off a bottle of Ardbeg roller coaster <laughs> this weekend. Mm-hmm. Right? I I had 
you know, very dear friends over yesterday for social distancing in the backyard to to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and roller our big roller coaster. I I pull out for you know before the end times. Anybody who came to my house, if they liked peated whiskey, I would pour our big roller coaster for them. Mm-hmm. And so here we are, you and I, recording this special episode about Will Oldham. I've I've emptied my bottle. Mm-hmm. The roller coaster has come and gone. And just as we were talking about earlier in the episode, I do have more unopened bottles of it to pull out. That's why <laughs> I enjoy sharing it as much as I do. Uh-huh. There will be a fresh bottle of roller coaster coming. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it is. It's it's good to have precious bottles. It's good to have stories. It's, it's good for me to remember that I was still living in Eastern Washington when it went on sale on the Ardbeg website. I remember being there at, at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, waiting for my purchase mm-hmm. to to load, to process. I, I probably sat for an hour, an hour and a half. It was one of those first releases where the internet crashed yeah, around yeah. it. And and I still managed to acquire two bottles. I didn't know until I woke up the following morning and saw my credit card statement that I had actually secured the two bottles. Um, you know, maybe it was an illusion. Maybe the system mm. crashed. Maybe my credit card got kicked offline. But I really did have two bottles. And it's been a bottling that I've continued to purchase at auction. Mm-hmm. If I show you the, the back of the the bottle here. Oh, yeah. You can see my name written on the back. Johnston Yellen, uh, 27th auction, 1213. Um, and it looks like I paid £185 for it mm-hmm. at auction. Um, that that might be the 185 I don't know. It just says 185 on this back sticker. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's it's something I, I actively look for and I, that I love sharing. So... You know, just like you will, and and I know when we return for your your second daughter's bat mitzvah, we'll we'll open more special bottles. When you come for for my youngest kids, you know, second bar mitzvah, we'll open bottles. Mm-hmm. Fun will be had. Fun will. That's be That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. Should we wake up the paper boy? Sure. What what news do we have to share? We've got news. Okay. Extra, extra. This episode is going live on September 23rd. And the news that I wanted to share mm-hmm. is Whistle Pig is somewhat in a rear view mirror. We have we have sold through via lottery. Our single cast nation, Whistle Pig, Spirit of Collaboration, Tokai Finish, and then separately, Rum and Vermouth Finish Bottlings. Mm-hmm. Very, very well considered by those who, who got some preview tastes. Uh, Will Oldham himself loved, loved, loved the Takai Finish, mm-hmm. which was really wonderful to hear and celebrate with him. For those... Uh, waiting on the next single malt coming out from us. Uh, any day now, you know, could have been this weekend, could be sitting in customs, could be the, the day that this episode goes live. We will be launching soon our first Welsh single malt. 
from the Penderen Distillery. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've mentioned it previously on the podcast. It is an eight-year-old uh, in a first fill Grand Cru Bordeaux Barrique. Mm-hmm. Cask GC2, uh, one of 269 bottles, uh, 59.9% alcohol. I wanted to take a moment because as much as this will be available, single cast nation online, this will be a US membership bottle. Mm-hmm. This has been our first bottling that Jess Lomas, our global sales manager who, who resides in Glasgow, Jess was in charge of the bottling of this with our new bottling hall in That's the south right. of Scotland. That's right. And so you and I in receiving these were checking the capsules, checking the synthetic corks, <laughs> seeing how the labels went on. Mm-hmm. And it's it's beautiful. It's yep. everything uh, we've grown accustomed to uh, with our Scottish bottlings. And... I've got a little in my glass. I don't know if you have a little in your glass. Oh, yes. Yes. And I've actually, uh, I was, I've been cheating. So I oh, actually, really? well, because, <laughs> because I finished, uh, cause I, you know, like you, I actually poured a, a little bit of roller coaster. You, you inspired me. Um, but, but then separately you and I, I get that a lot, Joshua. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks for derailing me there. Um, you're you know, welcome. Like you, I poured a little bit in a separate glass and just let it breathe a little bit. And it is everything I remember it being. Let's talk, let's, let's give our listeners some notes on this one. You want to, want to go over the nose, go over the palate on this one? Get yeah, people- pumped about our first yeah, Welsh whiskey? Let's not belabor the point, but I think it's definitely worth sticking our noses in this. I, I had jumped, I, again, because I'd been nosing it while you were yakking away. I had kind of jumped onto the palate of this. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, if you had told me this was a Ben Nevis in some wine cask, Huh. I would have believed you. It's got the earthiness mm-hmm. across the palate. Yeah. It's got that fecundity that we'll often talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. across the palate that I am familiar with from Ben Nevis. However, and we'll, we'll get to the nose. You, so, you, so you're cheating. You're already talking about the palate. But, so I'm going to cheat as well, but we need to go back to the nose. However, mm-hmm. beneath that, and actually, before I talk about beneath that, I really think that that earthiness is a cask-driven note. Knowing Pandaren, and Pandaren always has this bright... Correct. I'm right? glad you bring this up. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes. This needs to be stated. Right. Their their spirit character is bright, and it's berry-driven. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. all the red berries. It's all the blue-colored berries. It's all that, like, fresh lovely summer fruit driven kind of spirit but it married so well with the earthiness of that grand cru uh, bordeaux barrique and there's even this subtle salty quality coming through that i think is just yeah. remarkable um yeah I, and and do you have any sense of where that saltiness is coming from because 
Grand Cru Bordeaux wouldn't necessarily deliver salty, and Penderen doesn't tend to deliver salty. I, I don't know. I don't know, but I yeah. get it on the nose too. Like when you nose this thing, there's something. Okay, I, growing up as uh, a Connecticut Jew with some very Jewy grandparents from mm-hmm. from from Brooklyn and and Inglewood, respectively, uh, I grew up with salt bagels, and. Every weekend, I'd go to my grandparents' house, and they'd get their bagels from Brooklyn, We'd and I would ask for salt bagels. They'd toast it, they'd put cream cheese, put a little lox on there, but there's this intensity of salt that just amplifies the flavors of everything else, and that's what I'm getting on the nose and palate. You're getting this salt intensity, but it's not... It's not overwhelming you. What it's doing is it's just lifting all of the other flavors. It's lifting that earthiness. It's lifting the fruitiness. On the nose, I get this sort of like chocolate-covered espresso bean, and it's just lifting that. Uh, it's, It's really remarkable whiskey. It really is. I'll also say this. We're at the part in the season where our raspberry bushes in our backyard are just giving us more raspberries than we can possibly deal with. (laughs) And it's a wonderful, wonderful problem to have. Mm -hmm. And as this whiskey finishes, Mm -hmm. it's the exact same taste that I get after shoveling handfuls of raspberries into my mouth Mm -hmm. and swallowing them down. That is, mm, that returns so beautifully. But I want to follow up on on kind of a thread that, that you're delivering here. One of the great comments that we make about our friends at Glen Murray is their spirit adheres so beautifully to the wine casks mm. that they use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, port specifically. And, and, yeah. and again, you know, just, just last week I was posting on Instagram that I was sitting having fill your own Glen Murray Marsala cask finish and then separately a Sautern cask maturation. Mm-hmm. And... And the wine just works so beautifully. And, and there are moments when, you know, port being a great example, where I find port sits like oil and water. Port's on one hand, scotch is on the other. Uh, you know, water's on one hand, oil's on the other. Um, this balance in this whiskey between the Grand Cru Bordeaux Barrique and that Penderen spirit that you were talking about yeah. is just so beautiful. And, and and you and I said this when we selected the cask. Uh, our, our nation members are going to go bananas for this. This is going to fit the nation palette so well. Yeah. So well. And as our first Penderen that we're putting out there for membership, mm-hmm. we're hitting a home run right out the gate. Which is such a beautiful mixed metaphor, right? How to bring baseball and horse racing together. <laughs> uh, what, what I love about just Pendaren in particular, their whiskey doesn't make, on paper, their whiskey doesn't make sense to me from a palate standpoint because they're producing spirit in a different way than any other single malt producer. When you think about Scottish single malt that's double distilled from pot stills. 
And the spirit comes off as still mm-hmm. somewhere 70, 75% alcohol, something like that. But Pandaren are using the, you know, these Faraday stills that are exclusive to them. And the spirit comes off the still between 89 and 92% alcohol. That's really close to grain neutral spirit. And so you would imagine you distill something to that level, to that much alcohol, when you clean it that much, that there shouldn't be oils coming through in the whiskey to calm the heat. But at 59.9% alcohol, this continues to tick probably the most major box that we have, and that's the texture box. This is so rich in texture. Absolutely. Right? It, it just, and that's why <laughs> I say it. On paper, Pandaren's whiskey doesn't make sense. If you distill it to 92% alcohol, and granted, they dilute it to 63 and a half, just like the industry does, and they, they fill the, you know, the casks with that ABV, but it shouldn't have the oils that it has, yet it retains that good, rich character. That, that we just look for. And so I, I'm, I'm so happy, so pleased, and so proud of this bottling. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, easy to, it's easy to wax lyrical in the news segment, right? I know, I know, I know, um, yeah. uh, I'll also add, we shipped the Whistle Pig and, and continue to ship. We've got 900 bottles going out. Uh, the Whistle Pig is going through our Southern California shipper. Mm-hmm. The Pendaren will go through our Northern California shipper. So if you're looking to pick up another bottle of the Blended Malt 10, another bottle of the Stones of Stenness 19, those two bottles will be available when the Pendaren goes on sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we're $10 flat rate shipping. If you want to spread your shipping cost across multiple bottles, you will be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, once the Whistle Pig is cleared through Southern California, we will be launching, and we've talked about it previously on the podcast in the new segment, we will be launching our single malt from Balcones. Yes, and indeed. so we have time to, to taste that and talk about that in a future news segment. Mm -hmm. But know that that is sitting in our warehouse waiting to go on sale once we ship through 900 bottles of Whistle Pig. (laughs) Uh. Don't want anybody to to think we've forgotten about the balcones uh, that we had been talking about. No, I'm so excited for that one too. You know, the last bit of news, and and I think we should get out of the news on this one. The other reason that we were in Kentucky... You know, beyond interviewing Will Oldham for the podcast, was to to be on our first whiskey business trip. And so it was our friends at Wild Turkey Distillery had reopened for barrel picks. And so you and I both drove to Kentucky. You, you had about seven hours up, and I had 13 like hours. Seven hours across. Across. Yeah. And, and you and I picked... Two new wild turkey single casks. And what I'm excited about from these two is one of them is just so beyond good. Like it is just wild turkey on steroids. Everything that we love about modern wild turkey, 
and then some, where the other one is unlike any wild turkey that you and I have ever tasted ever. And the best comment that we had gotten, because we were with both Eddie Russell and Bruce Russell, Bruce said, if you put this in front of me blind, I don't know if I'd be able to tell you where this came from. Mm -hmm. Right? And I loved that because, A, it was phenomenal bourbon, but B, it was so off profile that even one of the Russells said, I I don't know if I'd peg it. And I love that. I just absolutely (laughs) love that. And we tasted a sister cask from the same warehouse. And I would say that that sister cask may, I don't know, it was absolutely remarkable, but this one was off the beaten path and that's what we were looking for. It was both remarkable and a world of difference from anything we've ever done previously with wild turkey. Yeah, which is it's the ongoing challenge to, to returning down there, right? Mm-hmm. And if we can keep pulling that off for our members, then we're, we're doing our jobs just fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here endeth the news. You and I, Jason, started yes, this... Yeah, you and I started this episode differently than we normally do because we said how is this episode different from every other episode and that was all you're doing i am i am but a passenger in the roller coaster that is one nation under whiskey oh look at you with the nod to roller coaster thank you pro move because we started differently i thought we should maybe end differently this seems like you have a plan You didn't bring this up in our production meeting, but okay. Well, just like Will Oldham came out with an album called I Have Made a Place, I would like to say I have made a plan. And my plan is that we... (laughs) Deep dive. Right. You and I change the way in which we get out of here on the podcast. I would like to hand it over back again to Will Oldham and let him sing a cappella... One of my favorite songs from, from his latest album. I, and that album, of course, is called I've Made of Place. And this song is called This Is Far From Over. And it's one of the most positive songs on there. But it sounds like you have a, you have a statement you want to make before I close this out here. I, I want to provide a visual. Right. As you and I were sitting on the back porch listening mm. to Will sing this song, where we, we already had goosebumps sitting there with this incredible private performance. As he was in the middle of singing this, he pointed upwards and, and he had this overhanging trellis with some native honeysuckle on it. And we both looked up and there was a hummingbird feeding right above our heads as Will Oldham sang this song. And if a perfect moment could get, and you'll like this, even more perfect (laughs) It happened in that moment. It was quite remarkable. And I had goosebumps on my goosebumps. It reminded me of something. And now, I'm not saying this to be political because I'm not trying to be political at all. But if you remember in 2015-ish, 2016-ish, 
there was a, a Bernie Sanders speech. And in the middle of the speech, a bird landed on the podium. <laughs> and, he, and he said, oh, it, it was this, just this little magical moment that had nothing to do with his speech. It's just the bird happened to land. But it made that speech a bit more magical, I imagine, for people who, you know, who were Bernie supporters and, and things like that. And for me, at this time with, with Will Oldham and that hummingbird flying overhead had the same feeling. It made that our time with Will that much more magical, that much more poignant. Amen to that, brother. Will we, will we gather up our two chins and mosey on out of here? Let's do that. Cheers to you, Jason. Cheers to, to you, our, Joshua. To our listeners. Cheers to the good Will Oldham. And here's to a wonderful and hopefully positive new year for us all. All the best, Jason. 5781, here we come, ready or not. So, yeah, this one was the la- last song to be written for it, and, 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 it's, and it's about the future, so it's, it's pertinent. Okay. Lovely. Um, so it's called This Is Far From Over. And we'll see if my mildly whiskey-idle brain can remember the lyrics. Um, Though half of life is gone for good And we haven't acted as we should You feel it in your heart of wood That this is far from over Shoreline's gone and maps destroyed Livelihoods dissolved and void Entire languages unheard And still it's far from over Be sure and teach your kids To swim and navigate By stars above The fate of landlocked life is grim If you Ignore our will to love When all that's left is sea and sun A lonely voice says all's not done It's your child who will be the one To sing it's far from over A traveler Upon the sea sings, it's a sailor's life for me. I now embrace eternity. Yes, this is far from over. You never know what she will find when we are dead. And she is sailing, nor what new thoughts may cross her mind. As wind blows in her hair Don't worry if all life is gone The rocks and sea will still roll on And new wild creatures will be born Yes, this is far from over 
The whole world's far from over. That's that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, tremendous. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.